Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Avery Weinman, and I am the host of this episode of the New Books Network series in Middle East Studies. Today, I'll be speaking with Professor Andrew Simon, who is currently a lecturer and research associate at Dartmouth University. We will be discussing his fantastic new book, Media of the Masses, Cassette Culture in Modern Egypt. Media of the Masses explores the production of Egyptian culture from the 1970s through the present day through a social biography of a once ubiquitous everyday technology the audio cassette tape. Analyzing how the Egyptian state, the police, public elites in the media and in religious institutions, and ordinary Egyptians interacted with cassette tapes complicates the historical narrative of the production of Egyptian culture. The material and technological features of the physical cassettes themselves, ordinary, newly powerful Egyptian creators and producers, and the diverse forms of the sonic substances on these cassettes, which range from original music to bootlegged live concerts to Quranic verses, all show that the creation of Egyptian culture was not a unidirectional, uncontested phenomenon. At the same time, as Egyptian institutions sought to curate what acceptable, quote-unquote, refined Egyptian culture should be, and to control who could produce Egyptian culture, ordinary Egyptians carved out a robust counterculture of their own. This counterculture comes into focus, or perhaps miraculously comes into tune, from a novel approach to the history of culture, not from the perspective of top-down institutions, but from the perspective of everyday items. This is an extraordinarily rich and exciting read that I don't want to spoil any further. Um, so with that short introduction, I want to say, Professor Simon, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Avery, for that that warm introduction and for this opportunity to discuss the book. I'm super excited to appear on the New Books Network, which I started listening to about a year ago, and it soon became the soundtrack to many of my walks in socially distanced times, and it's an honor to appear on the podcast now. Great. Well, uh, first question I want to ask is a good one to start with, which is, how did you initially get interested in this subject? Sure. So about a year after graduating undergrad in North Carolina in 2010, uh, I ended up in Egypt, in Cairo, uh, to be specific, for a fellowship at the Center for Arabic Study Abroad. And that center at the time was based in downtown Cairo on the old American University in Cairo campus, right on the border of Tahrir Square. And that fellowship just so happened to coincide with the 2011 Egyptian revolution. So if you could imagine looking outside the windows to a classroom that you were in, and rather than seeing a few people walk by or maybe some cars pass by, you saw thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people calling for the downfall of an authoritarian regime. That's what I ended up witnessing in Cairo. So outside of class, even returning to my apartment, I would pass through the square. Um, I attended many of those mass demonstrations. And something that struck me, as was the case with many other people, were things that I was seeing. So the graffiti, the signs, 
an effigy of Hosni Mubarak hanging from a lamppost. But something that really piqued my curiosity were also the things I was hearing, the sounds, so slogans, poetry, uh, the rise of new artists in the square, people like Rami Sam, also the revival of older performers like Sheikh Amem. And it was around that time that one of my very good Egyptian friends, uh, when I was telling him about all of the literary greats that we were reading in those Arabic classes, people like Taha Hussein, the Gimafuz, basically told me that if I ever wanted to understand anything about Egypt, I needed to stop reading and start listening. So I returned to the U.S. for grad school, and it was at that point that I really dove deeper into Egypt's soundscape and acoustic culture. I ended up writing particular papers on artists, musical genres, religious currents. And then when I took a step back, I realized that the thread connecting all of these different endeavors was cassette tapes. So I set out to write a history of the cassette in Egypt. And then in the course of my research, I realized that I could actually write a history of Egypt through the window of the country's cassette culture. And that realization really came by reading popular Egyptian magazines like Rosa Youssef, Akhrsa, and seeing cassettes surface in all these very surprising places, whether in terms of court cases or popular crime reports or celebrity news. And it was at that point in time that I really began to think more critically about media technologies and the stories that they tell and how those tales can assist us in reimagining the making of modern nations. Right. And then before we dive into the more specific history of cassettes in Egypt, uh, can you help us to set the stage for kind of the greater context of this topic that you got so fascinated by? So what is happening in Egypt in the 1970s, in the 1980s? What is the infitah and how does it affect Egyptian, Egyptian cassette culture? Sure. So this is a very dynamic time in Egypt's modern history. Uh, And the story of this period often serves as historical context for the Arab Spring, as opposed to a, a subject of study in its own right. So that's a story that I set out really to tell in this book. When people talk about this era of the 70s and the 80s going into the 90s, it's often told uh, through three different lenses, I would say. So we have a focus on very momentous affairs, things like the 1973 October War, for instance, the consolidation of power, whether in terms of uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser, Anwar Sadat, or Hosni Mubarak, and then Islam, the Islamic revival, the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, Islamist organizations. In this book, I really set out to tell a different story of this time frame. So shifting the focus from watershed events to more mundane matters, things like music, daily life, rather than focusing on the rise of ruling regimes, looking at the challenges that were posed to them by a variety of different actors, and then pivoting away from the religious to the profane. So looking and listening beyond Islam when it came to trying to make sense of Egypt's recent past. And one central element of this story is the Infatah, or Egypt's economic opening. Here's where we see this shift from state-sponsored socialism to open-door capitalism under Sadat. Some of the intentions of the economic opening are to generate foreign investment, 
to strengthen private enterprises in Egypt and really to curtail state involvement in economic matters. When people often talk about the Infatah, it's from this very top-down, policy-driven, macro-development type angle, and they view it primarily as an economic affair. Something that I try to do in Media of the Masses is to offer a cultural history of Egypt's economic opening, which ushers in the dawn of mass consumer culture. And something that I think becomes clear in the case of the book is that the economic opening was not only about the West and foreign funding from it, but also the Arab world and Egyptians laboring around it. The advent of Egypt's cassette culture coincides with the creation of this wider consumer culture. So the origins of cassette culture in part then are transnational. This is a point in time where we have countless Egyptians traveling abroad as economic migrants. They would go to places like the Gulf, but also to Libya, Iraq, and elsewhere to try to earn uh, higher wages, to try to improve their economic livelihood. And then they would not only send money back to Egypt, but they would also buy things abroad and return with those objects to Egypt. And two of the purchases that many Egyptians made often were electric fans and cassette players. So this is where we really see the beginning of cassette culture. And this is prior to cassette technology then becoming more diffuse in Egypt through local agents, which would license with international companies like Toshiba, Samsung, Sony. And then we have the local and the international flow of cassette technology really contributing to that medium's uh, social life and to its popularity. And it's at this point in time, with this broader consumer culture, that we also see this idea of the modern home really taking off in Egypt and in the popular press. And modernity, in this case, is much less about education and the education of the occupants of a home than it is about the objects in a home. So it's at this point in time in the 70s and 80s where we also really see the materialization of the modern and an increasing number of working class Egyptians with greater purchasing power who would come to play a part for the first time ever in the production and the circulation of Egyptian culture. And this would become a major source of anxiety for local authorities in Egypt. I love that it's the electric fan uh, is the other one that is like a big migrant workers bringing it back from elsewhere. Um, it's very much a Middle Eastern story then if people are concerned foremost about the heat. <laughs> um, but with the greater context of Egypt under Sadat in place, um, can you tell us a little bit more about audio cassettes themselves in this time? And so what I'm interested in is really their material features. Are they lightweight? Are they cheap? Are they easy to transport? And how do these material features um, play a role in how audio cassettes function in Egyptian culture? Sure. And one, one other quick note on the electric fan and the cassette player. Those purchases were so common abroad that they're actually a cliche in Egyptian cinema. 
So if anyone out there has seen the film Tir Anta with Ahmed Gindi, for instance, the opening scene of that film is his parents returning from Kuwait City in the mid-1980s with a double cassette player and an electric fan inside of their car. And so this is something that was incredibly commonplace. In terms of the physical attributes of cassette technology, um, they're very important, and they're really what made that technology appealing to so many people. Things like portability, affordability, usability, all of these are present when it comes to cassette tapes and cassette players. In terms of the technology's mobility, the circulatory potential of cassettes was tremendous. Cassette tapes easily traveled from Siwa to the Sinai to the Said or Upper Egypt, and not only across Egypt, but well beyond Egypt's national borders. Cassettes could fit in your pocket. Cassette players were compact. They were lightweight. They were often battery operated, which was important because Egypt's electrical grid did not necessarily extend equally across the country. And this portability was also a central dimension of even early advertisements for cassette technology, which in the case of Egypt was often referred to as a movable friend. That was a motto that accompanied many of these ads. Cassette tapes and players were also affordable and they were durable. And the low cost of tapes, unlike, let's say, the cost of something like a television set, enabled many people uh, to purchase them with ease. And cassettes even became quite widespread, even among Egypt's less affluent citizens, and became a staple in countless Egyptian homes, those modern homes. We also have the idea of usability. So anyone, irrespective of their education, economic standing, location, gender, age, had the potential to record their voice and to reach a mass audience for the first time in Egypt's modern history. That was something that was simply not possible with radio or records prior to the arrival of cassettes. In these regards, then, Lou Adams, who invented the first compact cassette player, really, I would say, succeeded in his mission to create something that was cheaper, smaller, and easier to use than the reel-to-reel tape recorder. But what he did not really envision, I would say, is how cassette technology, once it went from being a concept to a commodity, would empower an unprecedented number of people in Egypt to create culture circulate information and challenge ruling regimes for the first time ever. Right. It's fascinating also that there's this link between the accessibility of the physical features of the tape. So the fact that they're lightweight, that they're portable, uh, that you're able to buy them on the street with not all that much money, that they're fairly cheap. It's interesting that there's a connection between these physical features and the discourse around them in terms of legality, deviancy, criminality. In the book, you explain how Egyptians acquired cassettes legally, and we spoke about that a little already with migrant workers bringing them back from around the Gulf, usually when they're working in oil fields back to Egypt. Uh, But you also explain how they acquired cassettes illegally, uh, most often through some form of smuggling. So I have a two-part question about this. Uh, First, can you tell us a little bit more about the illegal circulation of these tapes? And after that, can you tell us more about how these discourses of legality, criminality, deviancy affected how the state understood cassette tapes? 
Sure. So these discourses of legality and criminality, I think, are very important when it comes to when it comes to Egypt's cassette culture. I think in terms of the illegal circulation of tapes, this is something that we really see in the case of piracy in particular. So piracy, for the first time, becomes a popular practice courtesy of cassette tapes which is something that always surprises, I would say, my students of a much younger generation who tend to think of piracy solely in a digital online context. And this is something that makes sense to an older generation who also actively engaged in cassette piracy, whether in the case of Egypt or the US or elsewhere. So piracy then takes off precisely due to the usability, affordability, and really potential to circulate when it comes to cassettes. And in the case of Egypt, piracy takes multiple different forms, all of which I would say are criminalized to some extent, especially from the vantage point of not only the state, uh, but also cultural gatekeepers. One of the forms that piracy assumes that I explore in the book is what I refer to as personal piracy, individuals copying things onto cassette tapes whether from state-controlled Egyptian radio, vinyl records, live concerts um, that they personally experienced. And we see evidence of personal piracy on the tapes themselves, which is something that I just found to be absolutely fascinating. So in my cassette collection, for instance, I have a cassette recording of Beethoven that has since become a recording of Hassan al-Asmar, who is considered to be one of the most vulgar singers in Egypt at this point in time. I also have another cassette recording that is a soundtrack to Sangam, this hit Bollywood film from the 1960s that has since become Quranic recitation. I also have other tapes of Um Kulthum, who was considered to be the voice of Egypt, this very elite performer with absolute immense power also being recorded over (laughs) by people pirating different things on her cassettes as well. In addition to personal piracy, when it comes to those, that illegal circulation of tapes, we also have state piracy. So believe it or not, we have state employees in Egypt recording things like radio broadcasts illegally onto cassette tapes, and then selling those cassette tapes to the highest bidder. And then we also have international piracy. So cassette recordings being pirated and copied elsewhere, circulating globally, and then sometimes returning even to Egypt, much to the dismay of the original authorized voices on the tapes who were not earning profits from those cassettes. One example of that that I think really highlights this idea of illegal circulation is this one particular Egyptian sheikh, Mahmoud Khalil al-Husri, who travels to the U.S. actually. He's invited to recite the Quran in Congress. I believe he's the first one ever to actually do so. He meets with President Jimmy Carter at the time. Carter is reportedly very taken by al-Husri's voice. Al-Husri says that he'll send him some of his cassette recordings when he returns to Egypt. His next stop from the White House, he's flying to Chicago. And en route to that city, he picks up a copy of the Chicago Tribune and sees his tapes are for sale in the U.S. 
in an advertisement in that paper, which was something that he thought was absolutely shocking, but really highlights the immense circulation of these recordings that originated in Egypt and then end up elsewhere. Also, when it comes to piracy, something that was fascinating as well were the disclaimers that appeared on cassette sleeves, on the cassette jackets, trying to crack down on piracy. So you would have different recording labels in Egypt, for instance, writing these messages to prospective buyers of those tapes, urging them to call the cassette police, which was an actual entity that existed in Egypt, if a tape appeared to be fraudulent, the exterior of it. There were also other instances of one cassette company on the jacket for a particular Islamic sermon claiming that cassette piracy was not only illegal, it was also un-Islamic, and that proceedings from that particular cassette recording, a percentage of them, would go towards orphans in Egypt. So not only were cassette pirates breaking the law, they were also taking money from orphans. All of these attempts to eliminate cassette piracy fail. And this is where we see local authorities trying to highlight their successes when it came to not necessarily stopping the illegal circulation of cassette tapes in the case of piracy, but trying to stem the illegal circulation of cassette players in Egypt. Right. And then another interesting dimension of this attempt to stymie cassette players and new producers is the role that state media and state adjacent media plays in framing cassette artists and producers and merchants in a negative light. And you touch on this in some length in the book. In particular, I'm thinking of these formulaic popular crime reports that often appeared in the pages of Egypt's biggest newspapers and magazines. Can you explain a little bit about what these popular crime reports are and what they tell us about attempts to control and curate Egyptian culture? Sure. So these these popular crime reports are are wonderful. I encourage any <laughs> Arabic reader out there to to dive into these and turn to these in the in the popular press because they're just they're just fascinating. So two two of the practices that I look at in one of the chapters of the book are theft and smuggling, which are these two key components when it comes to what I call the criminal biography of cassette technology. And both of these practices surface in these popular crime reports, which essentially try to highlight and showcase and popularize the successes of the security sector, the triumphs of the police in Egypt. So in these reports, we have police officers, we have members of the Mukhabarat or the secret police, detectives, military officials all working seamlessly together, the epitome of teamwork, to crack down on and successfully apprehend um, different criminals in Egypt, whether it came to thieves or when it came to smugglers. And something that is quite fascinating in these reports, which document the theft of cassette players from cars, stores, homes, or the smuggling of them in suitcases or hidden compartments in vehicles, is that these reports are intended to really showcase the triumphs of the police, but what they reveal is the limitations of policing. 
And so through a counter reading of these reports, one of the things that I show in the book is how they actually evidence this very robust black market for cassette technology and also for other consumer goods in Egypt. And these black markets are really part and parcel of this broader economy of desire with the dawn of consumer culture in the 70s and 80s. And through this counter reading of the popular crime reports, we also see the popularity of cassette players and their presence in all of these different places. In terms of those black markets, people often stole or smuggled cassette players, not for personal use, but to sell. No one person needed 20 cassette players, for instance. (laughs) And so we often have these players being taken from all these different places, being smuggled across Egypt's national borders through places like Port Said, a city that becomes synonymous with smuggling in the case of Egypt, but also through Cairo's airport, through the ports of Alexandria, and then being sold in places like Shawarbi Street, which becomes renowned as this outlet for smuggled goods in downtown Cairo. And markets like the one on Shawarbi Street, but also elsewhere, I mean, really anywhere across Cairo or across the country, proved impossible to police. When it came to smuggling, this was a very widespread practice. We had individuals who were reported on in the press known as suitcase traders who (laughs) took advantage of looser restrictions on imports under Sadat. And so the acts of smuggling that they were even engaging in weren't necessarily illegal it could have it was really an unexpected outcome of a government policy that the people who passed that policy were not necessarily anticipating and then we also had other people who just blatantly broke the law who concealed things in their suitcases passed through customs whether it was in Porsaid or elsewhere made their way to places like Shawarbi Street and then sold not only cassette technology but really countless other items. And one of the things that I really tried to show in the book is that so often when smuggling has been written about in the case of Middle East studies, the focus frequently is on narcotics and Mm -hmm. on drugs, hashish and other things. And that scholarship is wonderful, but it also inadvertently, I would say, lends the impression that one was more likely to smuggle a kilo of cocaine than a pair of shoes in the case of Egypt or elsewhere in the region. And so something that I tried to highlight is the objects that were making their way into and around Egypt through these smuggling circuits were also these ordinary consumer goods, these everyday technologies, including cassette players and tapes. I think that's an excellent point. And I also want to emphasize um, this irony that you're talking about, or that we were just speaking about, which is there are all these kind of puff pieces of Egyptian police busting these criminals who are stealing cassette players. But that in and of itself is implicit recognition of a really robust black market. And uh, I think that's just a great example of the kind of insight that we gain from the perspective that you use in this book, from the perspective of the everyday item and the everyday producer to understand Egyptian culture. Um, This kind of irony is something that we might miss if we only did a top-down focus 
from the perspective of the institution on how Egyptian culture is made. But I want to focus then more closely on this tension over Egyptian culture, on what it should be and who can produce it. Because for me, this is really the central idea of the book. And you phrase it as a conflict between vulgar culture, uh, vulgar being the term that you use, which is embodied by the culture around cassette tapes, and refined culture, which is the term that you used, which is embodied by, for example, Egyptian state radio. Can you explain uh, what you mean in the contrast of vulgar and refined culture here? Sure. So one of the things that I look at in the book is Egypt's vulgar soundscape. And one of the inspirations for this is actually the only other study, book-length study, on cassettes in Egypt, which is Charles Hirschkin's The Ethical Soundscape, which focuses primarily on Islamic sermons. So by bringing the vulgar soundscape into the conversation, I really wanted to paint a more panoramic picture or provide a more expansive window onto Egypt's acoustic culture and what people were listening to at this point in time. When it comes to this question of vulgarity, vulgarity has multiple meanings. So it can mean uh, obscene, obscene language, something that's unsophisticated, or of the masses. And in the case of Egypt's vulgar soundscape, it's really that final meaning of vulgarity that is of the utmost importance. This question of class is central to what is happening here when it comes to Egyptian culture. In the case of Egypt, culture from the perspective of cultural gatekeepers and local authorities is very much about the making of model citizens. It's something that's supposed to be educational and enlightening. Ordinary people are supposed to consume culture, not produce it. So when it comes to these discussions of vulgarity, which are everywhere in the popular press at this point in time, all these debates on the end of high culture, the contamination and pollution of public taste, all of these things are not simply about aesthetic sensibilities. They're really about what Egyptian culture was, what it's supposed to be, and most importantly, who had the right to create it. So when we see the impact of cassette players, this technology that enables anyone for the first time to contribute to the creation of culture and the circulation of cultural material, I think it's important to to situate that cassette culture in relation to the broader cultural terrain in Egypt at this point in time. So some of the important cultural mechanisms are things like state-controlled Egyptian radio. Radio in Egypt have been state-controlled since the 1930s. And by the 1970s and 1980s, there were actually multiple screening committees in the radio that determined what was broadcast to the masses. We had something called a, a listening assembly that would screen all the recordings that were brought to it, and then decide what would go to a station. We also even had a text assembly. So before songs even reached the listening committee, we had a group of of artists, sound engineers, radio officials reading through lyrics and deciding what was permissible and what was not. Once songs passed through those two committees, they then went to individual stations, which also then determined through another round of cuts, 
what would be broadcast. And so what ends up happening with state-controlled Egyptian radio is that we have a very small and a very elite pool of performers that actually reach a mass audience. We also have censorship in Egypt. So we have a censorship office in downtown Cairo in this period in the 70s and 80s that was responsible for screening every single commercially produced cassette in Egypt and every cassette that passed over Egypt's national borders into the country. This is something that shows the lengths to which the state tried to go to curate Egyptian culture and something that also proves impossible. That office was based in a two-bedroom apartment. It had seven employees and 15 cassette recorders, and they were responsible for screening (laughs) every single cassette that's part of this culture that we're discussing. There also was this state-engineered initiative called Public Culture. This is something that comes into existence in the late 1960s. It takes a, a very physical form in terms of infrastructure. So there are culture houses, culture palaces, culture clubs, not only in major urban centers like Cairo and Alexandria, but also across Egypt, where there were culture caravans that traveled across the country and sought to bring high state-approved culture to the masses. With cassette tapes, all of a sudden, any Egyptian has the ability to completely circumvent these official channels of cultural production to record their voice or the voice of anyone else and to reach a mass audience. And here's where we hear, for the first time, the rise of this new musical genre known as shabi or or popular music that takes off courtesy of cassette tapes. Yeah, it's a... The thing at the center of this tension that we're talking about now is vulgar. This tension between vulgar and refined culture is, of course, music. And the fact that this is a podcast and that our audience is listening to this conversation means that we have a really unique and great opportunity to actually play some of this music that we're talking about. So I have a clip in front of me that we will play for the audience. I'm wondering if you can explain a little bit about what we're about to hear. Sure. So the artist that we're going to listen to is Ahmed Adawaya. Habib Elbi. This is one of my favorite, favorite performers. He's a pioneer of popular Shabi music, which proceeded and parallels Mahraganat music today in many ways. So Shabi singers like Adawaya performed in colloquial Egyptian Arabic, the, the daily Arabic in which everyone communicated with one another. And they would often sing about everyday issues And so we do not have this attempt to enlighten or to educate the masses, but rather to reflect on many people's lived daily experiences. In terms of Adawaya, he is born in the mid-1940s, 1945, so seven years before the 1952 revolution. He moves to Cairo when he's still quite young, and he learns how to perform not in a conservatory, like many of his peers who were played on state-controlled radio, but on the street, Muhammad Ali Street in particular, which was renowned for its musicians in Cairo. And it's at a party for an Egyptian actor and singer that he ends up crossing paths with Mamouna Shanawi, who was a leading lyricist. And in 1973, Adawaya records his first major hit, Asahad Dahambo, this song that is about two individuals trying to quench their thirst 
The first is a man searching for a lover. And the second is a baby crying on the ground. And that song, that album sells over a million copies. And those are only official copies, not to mention the countless pirated copies of that track. And that becomes one of many hits that would elicit a lot of criticism from cultural elites who basically viewed Adawiya as the epitome of vulgarity, as someone who had no right to be heard by the Egyptian masses, and someone who consequently was not played ever on state-controlled Egyptian radio at this point in time. He circulates solely on cassette tapes. The song that we're about to hear is This is a little bit up, a little bit down in English. It's about a man and a woman who resides above him. Adawaya, in this case, plays the part of the guy who's glancing up at this girl only to have his flirtatious looks go unreturned. Critics called this song completely meaningless. Others said it was a very astute commentary on the growing class divides in Egypt between the haves and the have-nots, the above and the belows during this time of the economic opening. A reading of that song, by the way, that critics said was completely off base. This is one of those songs that becomes so incredibly popular and the title of it even becomes a catchphrase that people would say in daily conversations. Great. Well, let's have a listen. Right, so that is just a sampling of the song. And uh, something really interesting that you mentioned is the lyrics to the song uh, speak to the particular kind of class division uh, that was happening during the economic opening under Sadat. But I'm interested more in what you were saying about the critique about certain elites in the state saying that the critique was not accurate, that it actually had nothing to do with class difference. Do you know why um, certain elites in the state might have said that that critique was off base? Yeah, I think, and according to those criticisms, those critics would often say that people were reading meaning into a song where there was no meaning (laughs) whatsoever. Mm. And I think it really ties into this idea of, of class, and the creation of culture. Adawiya coming from this very much working class background, not passing through the proper channels of cultural production, whether in terms of those elite conservatories that people like Abdul Halim Hafez went to 
and state-controlled Egyptian radio. That's something he bypasses altogether when it comes to these cassettes. Singing that song and others in that daily colloquial Egyptian Arabic and really talking about these everyday scenes. And so on the one hand, that song, yes, it could be a commentary on growing class divides, or at the same time, it could just be this guy checking out this woman and this woman not being interested. (laughs) And that certainly is not educational or enlightening from the perspective of those cultural gatekeepers. And so we see the criticisms then coming from multiple Angles trying to silence Adawea, who at this point in time is one of the most popular performers in Egypt. It's fascinating. It's uh, we still kind of see remnants today across all sorts of genre that there's only certain actors who are capable of advancing like very serious critique of society, and then there's some art that's just for entertainment. Um, that's a really very interesting thread. That I think you're completely right. That the Critique that there is no critique there, uh, let's say, from the elites, betrays a lot about who is able to produce culture, but also who is able to have complex thought, who's able to have philosophy, um, who's able to criticize the state. And uh, we're going to listen to another song now. And the next song that we're going to listen to is one of the centerpieces of your book. And it's the song Nixon Baba by Sheikh Imam with lyrics by Ahmad Fuad Negim. And it's about this visit that the United States President Richard Nixon made to Egypt. Um, to properly appreciate the song and what you use it to tell us about narrative and counter-narrative and contestation about Egyptian culture, we need some historical context. So can you set the stage for us by explaining why Richard Nixon came to visit Egypt in 1974? Sure. So perhaps I'll start with Nixon's visit, and then I'll briefly introduce Sheikh Amem as well uh, before, we, before we hear the song. So Egypt was the first uh, five stops on a week-long tour for peace in the Middle East. And it really presented Nixon with an opportunity to not only bolster his image abroad, but also to escape the throes of Watergate back home. So when it comes to this journey, the objectives were really twofold. Both Nixon and Sadat sought to strengthen U.S.-Egypt relations and then also to promote peace in the Middle East. And Sadat pulled out all the stops when it came to Nixon's welcome. He shut down the airport. Authorities adorned the runway with an actual red carpet. A robust honor guard was assembled. Nixon descends from his plane. He's greeted with a 21-gun salute, and he's then escorted by Sadat to this jet black Cadillac that is part of this caravan consisting of almost 200 vehicles, which then make their way from the airport to Oba Palace. This journey was less than seven miles long. It's taking place in the scorching sun. And it took these politicians an hour to make it from the airport to the palace on highways that had been recently straightened by bulldozers and then passing under archways that were constructed especially for this occasion. And something to point out here is that this journey was far from silent. So you had Egyptian spectators lining the streets, chanting things like, we believe in Nixon and welcome to a man of peace in Arabic. And then we have sound trucks that were supporting other chants in English, things like long live Sadat and long live Nixon. So this procession was a very extravagant affair. There was actually an official office 
that was responsible for coordinating Nixon's popular reception in Cairo. And there were just so many different spectacular moments, even beyond that initial arrival. So Nixon received countless awards. The collar of the Nile was Egypt's highest honor. That's something that was bestowed upon him. He also got a gold medal, keys to different cities, flowers from children during multiple ceremonies. And all of these things were covered in the press, which really documented everything from speeches that Nixon delivered to the color of the mosquito net covering his bed in Egypt. The color the color of that net was green for any listeners wondering about that out, out there. So all of these things then really converged to constitute the official story of Nixon's welcome, the story that the Egyptian government is telling. And it's the story that Sheikh Hamam, through this song, Nixon Baba, is going to entirely flip on its head. In terms of Sheikh Hamam, he was born the year before the 1919 revolution in Egypt during the British occupation. He grew up in a small village outside of central Cairo. He lost his sight shortly after birth. He went on to memorize the Quran by the time he turned 12. And then he would go to Cairo to continue his Islamic studies. Ultimately, those studies proved to be quite short-lived. He was kicked out of his Islamic institute because he was caught by a student listening to the Quran being recited over the radio. This may seem like it may not make all that much sense. Why was he kicked out of an Islamic institute for listening to Quranic recitation over the radio? It's because the radio at that point in time, from the perspective of that institute's administrators, was viewed as a gateway to unbelief and immorality, irrespective of the content that it was broadcasting. So not only did Imam lose his potential degree from this institute, he was also made homeless because it it was where he was residing. So he went on to spend nights at different mosques, Al-Azhar and Hussein and Islamic Cairo, and to recite the Quran to try to make a living. And it's at one point where he crosses paths with this well-known music instructor, learns how to play the Oud, and then ultimately links up with Ahmed Fouad Nigam, who is one of Egypt's most prominent poets, writing in colloquial Egyptian Arabic. And that meeting takes place in 1962. And together with Nigam, whose poetry Imam would set to song, he would go on to challenge several of the official stories told by the state. And the resulting songs from that collaboration were never broadcast on state-controlled Egyptian radio. They circulated solely on informal cassette tapes. In terms of the song that we're about to hear, Nixon Baba, this is a number that immediately ties Nixon to Watergate, a crisis that irreparably damaged his image. And in the opening line of it, we hear, Welcome, Father Nixon, O you of Watergate, that cements this link that Nixon was desperately trying to erase. In addition to commenting on Watergate, the song also offers a jarring counter-narrative of Nixon's local reception in Egypt. So one of the things that Imam compares that grand procession to that we were just discussing from the airport to Oba Palace, he, he compares it to a wedding procession or a zephyr. 
But in this case, the U.S. president is not an honored guest. He plays the part of a pathetic groom that one married as a last resort. This figure that Imam audibly spits upon when he is performing this song on those cassette recordings. So this would mark a very sharp departure from the official story of Nixon's welcome. And it would go on to become that event's unofficial soundtrack. Fascinating. Let's have a listen. Right, so that's again just a snippet of the full song. Uh, By the way, for our listeners, we will try and embed um, the full songs in the text description on the webpage for the interview. But can you tell us a little bit about the lyrics that we just listened to and what specifically is going on in the song um, in the selection that we just heard? Yeah, so this is the very opening of the song where Imam is welcoming Nixon, saying, Welcome, Father Nixon, O you of Watergate. They have honored your arrival, the sultans of beans and oil. They rolled out the red carpet for you from Rasatin to Mecca. And from there, you will pass through Akra, which is a proverb for meaning doing the impossible in Arabic. And they'll say you made the pilgrimage. So (laughs) Saudi Arabia was also another stop on that five-stop tour for peace in the Middle East. In fact, it was the next place that Nixon was traveling to. And so this is just a completely different portrayal of Nixon's welcome that a man would proceed then to skewer and to lambast entirely in subsequent verses in the song. That's so fascinating and so interesting. And uh, I have another question about this that is slightly different, a diff- slightly of a different nature, which is I want to get back to the materiality of the cassettes themselves, which is how did the cassette format affect the circulation and popularity of this song? You mentioned already that it was never played on radio, partially because of the nature of the critique that they're advancing with the lyrics and with the music, but how did it circulate and where did it circulate to? Sure. So this, this song circulates almost entirely on non-commercial cassette tapes. So these are not cassettes that are produced in soundproof professional studios or released by major recording labels. These are people who have cassette recorders, ordinary individuals, who would travel to Imam's apartment that he shared with Nigam and record Imam singing there or record Imam performing at political demonstrations at places like Cairo University. And then they would play the cassette. Other people would copy the cassette. So here we have piracy actually being encouraged by Sheikh Imam and by Nigam, because that's how these songs are traveling outside of state-controlled Egyptian radio in the first place. Even now, if you go on YouTube, you can see some of Sheikh Imam's in-house performances where he would go and sing in people's living rooms 
or in the apartments of students as a guest. And you can see a cassette player very often positioned directly in front of him, recording those performances, which then make their way not only across Egypt on cassette tapes, but well beyond Egypt's national borders. So we have Imam's cassettes wandering to places like Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, the Gulf, Algeria. And all of these recordings are moving to all of these destinations long before Imam himself would actually ever travel there. And so he's only permitted to travel abroad in 1984 after Sadat dies by Mubarak. And one of the places that he goes is Algeria. And he performs in people's living rooms there as well, in these auditoriums. And many of the audience members sing songs like Nixon Baba along with Imam. And the reason that they're able to do that is because they heard it on cassette tapes before Imam physically arrived. And this is also the case even with concerts that he would give in Paris, in London, elsewhere in Europe, where Arab communities and diaspora also were trading in and circulating these non-commercial cassette tapes, on which we can hear not only the songs, but really evidence of the moment in which they were recorded. We hear people laughing, people joking, people conversing with one another, calling out for encores. All of these recordings were live, unfiltered, and grainy. And a number of these original cassette recordings have since made their way online into cyberspace, where they continue to circulate even now on streaming platforms like SoundCloud, um, even on YouTube and in other places. Right. What you're mentioning about the digital afterlives or the continued lives, perhaps not afterlives, of some of these songs is pushing me in the direction of the next question I want to ask, which is that while most of the book focuses on the 70s and 80s, there's a significant resonance between the cassette culture of that era and more recent Egyptian cultural production under, for instance, Hosni Mubarak and after 2011 through to today. So the song that we were just listening to, Nixon Baba, is a great example of this. Um, as a song, as you mentioned, has an afterlife of its own, the original recording existing on the internet, but also in terms of updated versions of the song itself. Can you tell us a little bit about the last song that we're going to hear today, which is a new version uh, by a more recent artist? Sure. So this version of Nixon Baba is by Miriam Saleh, who is a leading independent artist in Egypt. She grew up with Imam's music, actually. Imam would perform in her house at the invitation of her parents. And she, since then, has gone on to cover uh, and really reinvent and reimagine several of his songs, including Nixon Baba, which we're going to hear an electro rock version of now. Perfect. Let's have a listen. I love this version. I think it's just incredibly groovy. Um, so as you were mentioning, Salah's 
version is an example of newer music um, that still captures kind of a similar idea of the kinds of songs, the kind of critiques we would hear in cassette tapes of the 70s and 80s. Um, this song also comes out at the same time as a popular new genre emerged in Egyptian culture called Mahraganat. Uh, can you explain a little bit about what this genre is and what some of the similarities are between this genre of music and the cassette music of the 1970s and 1980s? Sure. So Mahragana is a do-it-yourself DIY musical genre. It emerges from urban working class neighborhoods now a little over a decade ago, and it gains popular traction following the fall of Mubarak in 2011. And it would then go on to resound everywhere from taxis to four-star hotels um, and any place in between in Egypt and also outside of Egypt's national borders. And in many ways, Mahragana as a genre shares a lot in common with Shabi music. Its artists perform in colloquial Egyptian Arabic. They sing about everyday issues. And instead of attempting to enlighten or to educate listeners, they often just speak about people's lived experiences. So unlike cultural gatekeepers in Egypt, in the present, they are not striving to craft model citizens. And for these reasons, Mahraganat, like Shabi music before it, has been the subject of a lot of criticism. The songs have been called vulgar. The artists have been accused of corrupting public taste. One Egyptian parliament member went so far as to say that the songs posed a greater danger to Egyptian society than COVID. And all of these criticisms, something that I tried to show in the book, is that they're not new. We see very similar critiques going all the way back to cassette culture in the 70s and 80s, where we don't have politicians talking about COVID, but we do have them saying that shabby music posed a greater danger, for instance, than cocaine to Egyptian society. One thing to point out when it comes to these Mahraganat numbers is that they're not circulating on cassette tapes. They're moving online on streaming platforms. You could go to a kiosk in downtown Cairo, pass over a flash drive and get hundreds of these Mahraganat recordings on that flash drive. Plug it into the USB port in your car. Listen to them whenever you wish. And there's been attempts to silence this genre quite recently. So going beyond just criticizing it, in February of 2020, the musician syndicate in Egypt banned the public performance of Mahraganat in Egypt. A couple of Mahraganat performers recently were even given prison sentences for certain songs that they had performed. And again, many of these things are not new. Many of these obstacles were faced by Shabi performers long before. And like that Shabi music, by Adawaya and others circulating on tapes, Mahraganat has defied these attempts to restrict and silence it. And one very recent example of this is Mahraganat playing a key part in the soundtrack of Moon Knight on Disney+, Plus, this major Marvel series. It's one of the most watched television shows in the world. And Mohamed Diab, who created this series, deliberately and intentionally included Mahraganat songs in it to showcase that that music is Egyptian culture, regardless of what cultural gatekeepers deem that culture to be. So here, once again, we see the failure of attempts to control the shape that Egyptian culture assumes. 
That is really interesting. And it's a, the Moon Knight case in particular reminds me of some of these transnational movements that we were discussing with cassette tapes in the first place, which is that the scope of people that this music is able to reach, that this culture is able to reach, isn't limited to just Egypt itself, but that it is a global phenomenon uh, that we're talking about here. Um, my last couple of questions are going to take us a little bit more towards the shop talk side of doing history. So two of the main arguments in your book are about one, the archive, and two, a methodological turn to the sensory experience. So first, can you explain what you mean by, quote, the Egyptian shadow archive, which is an important term that you use in the book? And as a follow-up to that, how would you like to see Middle Eastern historians' conceptions of the archive change in future scholarship? Sure. So one of the things that I tried to do in the book is really to invite readers to think more critically about archives and the sorts of stories that they make possible in Middle East studies and also outside of Middle East studies as well. In the case of Egypt, missing documents, restrictive research clearances, shuttered state collections are among the many, many obstacles faced by those trying to write histories of the country after the ascent of the free officers in 1952. So this is why we see so many more books on Egypt, for instance, under the British occupation in the early 20th century than on Egypt's more recent past. In the case of this book, I really set out to to ask and address a, a few different questions. So one of them is, how can we write a history of a nation in the absence of its national archives, which in the case of Egypt are inaccessible for the period that I'm exploring? Also then, how can we really expand the methodological horizons that you're pointing to in the case of Middle East scholarship? And importantly, how can we really challenge the attempts of local authorities to monopolize the past in the present? One of the ways that I try to go about doing these things is looking at the state-controlled Egyptian press. I pay particular attention to two leading weekly magazines, which I often tell people who are unfamiliar with Egypt or the Middle East, They're almost like a cross between Newsweek and People or something in the U.S., these tabloids. And they covered a a wide array of political, social, economic, and cultural affairs during the final few decades of the 20th century. And in those magazines, I examine everything from editorials and ads to those crime reports and cartoons to court cases and celebrity news. And then outside of the press, I also look at sources like films, memoirs, interviews that I conducted, declassified documents from the British National Archives, for instance, social media posts, personal photographs from family albums that no longer exist, but have since disintegrated into individual photographs that I had to piece back together from garbage bags that I found in a paper market. (laughs) And then also cassette tapes themselves the sleeves that encased them, the places that contained them, the people that sold them. And collectively, all of these materials converge to constitute what I call Egypt's shadow archive. This constellation of sites, formal and informal, that exist in the shadow of the Egyptian National Archives, whose sources provide us with a broader idea of the past, as opposed to what only a select number of people found worthy of preservation and continue to police in the present. In terms of what I would wish for 
when it comes to archives and Middle East studies going forward, I would really like to see scholars approach archives as a serious subject of study, as opposed to something that's so often confined to the footnotes of our studies, or something that we address very briefly in the introduction to books or to articles. I think that there can be so much potential and possibility when it comes to creatively engaging with and reconsidering what an archive is, and really then not only overcoming the inaccessibility of national archives in Egypt, but also in so many other places across the Middle East, but also then the the ability to tell different stories because the types of materials that exist outside of those official archives offer us an entirely different window onto the past, onto so many things that did not merit inclusion even in those official documents, even if we could access them in the first place. So that's what I would like to see going forward. Absolutely. I would love to see that going forward too. Um, So on the one hand, we have this more capacious imagining of what an archive is and a deeper, more concerted scrutiny of the archives that already exist as a way to expand kind of our historical horizon. But on the other hand, another way that you do that with this book is to advance kind of a methodological and conceptual turn. So can you situate this book in relation to other fields of sensory histories, sound studies, and also things like environmental history? Um, In other terms, kind of just different ways, different perspectives of approaching historical material. Sure. So one of the things that I tried to consciously do in this book is to really tell a story that would resonate with anyone interested in music, media, or the Middle East. And really part and parcel of that objective was to try to inspire as many questions as I answer, and also to advance different conversations that are only beginning to be underway in the field of Middle East studies. One of those conceptual turns concerns sound. So something that I make a case for in the book is really multi-sensory histories in Middle East studies. Because people in the past, much like we're doing right now on this podcast, including all of the listeners out there, is making sense of the world around us through all of the faculties at our disposal. So then to capture the complexity of people's sensory worlds, the history in this book takes sound seriously as an avenue of intellectual inquiry. At the same time, when it comes to those those conceptual turns and some of those conversations that I really try to advance, I mean, two others concern mass media and popular culture. So in the case of Middle East studies, many studies privilege only the most recent mass media, especially social media. And this is something that we see very often in discussions of the Arab Spring and things like Facebook. By exploring the the social life of an earlier technology, this book, I think, questions the newness of new media, like the internet, and encourages us to look beyond the invention of technologies to technologies in action. So once technologies actually exist and people use them in ways that inventors did not 
initially anticipate. When it comes to popular culture, I think the focus has often been on state-sanctioned voices. Scholars have written about performers, Um Kulthum is a prime example of this, who were endorsed by ruling regimes in the Middle East. And one of the outcomes of this is that scholars have assigned importance to the same individuals who were deemed important by people in positions of power. In this book, I tried to introduce individuals who challenged political authorities, cultural gatekeepers, and religious officials. And I think the result is a more expansive engagement with Egyptian culture that highlights how popular culture may not only confirm what we already know about the Middle East, but may also alter what we think we know. One of the the main aims here then, not only in this book, but even in the courses that I offer, is to really encourage people to think critically and creatively with cultural productions that we so often engage with solely in the context of entertainment or what we're enjoying when we're not working or researching. And so that was something else that I tried to approach uh, in a different manner in the story. Right. I think that brings us really, really nicely to the end of our conversation today. But before I conclude us entirely, I do want to ask one final question, which is, what is next for you? What is the next book project you have in mind? Oh, what is next for me? A couple, a couple of things I would say. One of them is I'm trying actively at the moment to secure an Arabic translation of this book. One of my dreams was to have this story be read by people in Egypt and across the Middle East, because so often these topics of popular culture, of mass media, of people like Ahmed Adawaya and Sheikh Hamam are individuals and things with which so many people are familiar, but they have not received their due attention in scholarship. And so that's something that I'm trying to accomplish at the moment. In terms of the next book project, I'll be writing a biography of Sheikh Hamam. And I'll be looking at what his life and legacy can teach us not only about Egypt, but about the the making of the modern Middle East more broadly. And so if any of you out there have Sheikh Hamem stories, please do not hesitate to reach out. And then I'll also be making my private collection of cassette tapes public and a digital archive later this year, which will contain not only amateur productions, but also professional recordings and feature everyone from Amr Sadat, his presidential speeches, Ahmad Adawaya, to Madonna and Michael Jackson. And I really hope that that platform will reach a very wide audience interested uh, in the Middle East and in Middle Eastern culture. And I think that it will be hopefully of interest to not only students and scholars, but really anyone interested uh, in learning more about the region and its recent past. Right. So incredible projects on the horizon. I'm uh, personally very excited to dive into all this digital content that is going to be at my fingertips soon. And uh, with that, I want to say thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Simon. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I appreciate it.